0: Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And today we have Christine Malik. She is the founder and creator of Sassy Coach, a motivational speaker and an international advocate for women against abuse and domestic violence. Welcome to the show, Christine. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Mike. I am doing awesome today. Thank you.
0: Awesome. I want to get into Sassy Coaching and what you do. And of course, I also want to ask you about your opinions on death. But I think it's important for our audience um, to get a good idea of who you are. So we usually ask, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you think you're a member of? 57.
1: Three absolutely beautiful children, two boys and a girl. They are adult children. They are 30, 31, and 35 this year. I have two beautiful granddaughters and a grandson on the way. Where did I grow up? I spent 26 years in um, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philly, Allentown, and then 30 years in Florida on the East Coast, Um, and then I'm here in Knoxville just a little over a year.
0: But that's cool. And I'm uh, very happy to hear about your adult children. We're experiencing the opposite end of the beautiful spectrum of life, I suppose. I like to just, you know, drop the tone from light and fluffy to as deep and dark as we can go. So, uh, of course, I also know from your background that you're not just involved in uh, advocacy for women against abuse uh, just because you happen to like the subject. Um, Do you mind telling us the story of kind of how you got into all of this?
1: Um, are we referring to the really, really dark one? Uh,
0: unfortunately, the really, really dark one.
1: Hey, everybody. I just
0: want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to Mikeyop.com, That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. So, that story, I was um married I think two or three years. Started as a, as a world one romance. <laughs> um came in, you know, the, the 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 knight in shining armor, the the knight on the white horse, you know, prince charming on the white horse. He came in, did everything right. Within less than a year we were married and that's when things started to change. He is Extremely narcissistic, along with being abusive. Um, it was probably a good year and a half. Let's see, we got married in 2013. So this was about 2015. Because of the abuse, the only way for me to deal with not only all the childhood traumas that I went through, but to deal with what I was dealing with, with him was to drink. And he was a heavy drinker just as, as bad. So the only way for me to deal with it was to drink. And, and we drank. I mean, like fish, we drank. Um, it was not pretty. I I can, I can proudly say that I just celebrated in August. I am six years sober. So we had been drinking one night and it, it, we had gone fishing throughout the day. This was down in Florida. We had gone fishing, came probably drinking at the, at the river and at the beach, um, came home, was drinking, you know, we were both drinking more and it didn't matter what it was that set him off. Something set him off. And... My, my initial reaction, because I had had enough throughout that day, was I, I broke down and cried. And the last thing any woman of abuse wants to do is cry in front of that abuser. I, I got up from the, the sofa, went into the bathroom. I actually sat on the toilet backwards with my arms on the tank arms on the tank, head in my arms, trying to stop the sobbering and the slobber and the, the crying and keep everything as quiet as possible because I knew it would set him off. I made the mistake of closing the bedroom door. There was a pocket door between the bedroom and the bathroom and he heard. And when he came down the hall, like I said, we were both drunk. When he came down the hall and got to the door to the bedroom and realized it was lost. He was pissed. Um, I like we went into total rage mode, screaming, yelling, hollering, um, you know, everything possible. Um, Cuss words, calling me names. Um, I heard him stomp out to the garage and heard the door slam, heard the garage door back open, slam again, and I could hear him coming down the hall and one or two huge, loud bangs and he busted through the door. Basically he got a sledgehammer, a huge sledgehammer and and pretty much took the door off the hinges. Huge hole in it, it, uh, totally unrepairable. Came in and I'm still sobbing and not really, I'm not looking at anything other than in my arms crying. And I heard the nightstand open and I heard the gun cock. And at that point, I I was fully prepared to say, just take me, just take me out. I, I was fully prepared to go. I, I want at that point, and because so much had happened leading up to this, I wanted to die. I had attempted suicide twice with this man. I had attempted suicide throughout several of my, my youth years because of other childhood traumas that I had gone through. So I was fully prepared just just take me out. So I heard the gun cock and he came over behind me and he's, he's six foot tall. I'm sitting on the toilet and I felt very heavy, the barrel on my head. And I was like, just do it. Just do it. Pull the F trigger. He's yelling at me, screaming at me, taking the gun and slapping me upside the head, putting it back on the top of my head. And I turned to my left and that was my breaking point. That was that. I was fully prepared at that point. Just, just do it. And I turned to the left. I said, "Pull the f and trigger you, blank. You ain't got balls big enough to do it. Pull the trigger. I'm so done with this. Pull the fing trigger. Just pull it. You ain't got balls big enough to, to do it. Pull the trigger." And he did. And two thoughts immediately went through my mind. And it was oh. I'm not dead and oh, I'm not dead. There was one of happy somewhat and one of disappointment. And I kind of looked up and I saw this huge quarter size. It was a 40 caliber gun. It was my gun actually. And I saw a huge quarter size hole in the wall in front of me. And it's a gunshot right on my head. I'm wondering how am I even alive? And, um, I could smell the the burnt hair, burnt flesh. It's a smell you never forget. I couldn't hear because of the you know the the gunshot itself, kind of you know went deaf, but I could tell that he was screaming in the background, and at that point I didn't care. I didn't care. Nothing he said mattered anymore. I could still hear the ringing in my ears. And I just sat there. And he's screaming and yelling. And at this point now I can feel the blood trickling down my head. And I was numb, just completely numb. After those two thoughts, that was it for a moment. So he got done. I I heard, you know, one of the last things I heard was, see what you made me do. He put the gun away. I heard him stomp out. I heard him sit back down on on the sofa. I could hear the big tequila bottle. Get picked up. I could hear the grunt, 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 pour the shot. Heard him take it. Put the shot glass down. I could picture in my mind what I didn't like. What he was sitting. How he was how he sat. Nowhere was there any care concern. I didn't get cleaned up. I didn't do it myself. I sat there in, in disbelief. Like I said, I, just numb. Like I said, more blood is trickling down my head. And I thought, well. I could take that gun and finish what he couldn't and put the gun to my head and pull the trigger. Second thought, I could take that gun, have 12 shots left, go out to the living room and commit justifiable homicide. Would it be justifiable? I mean, those are the thoughts that went through my head. And you know, even now I think about how do you think about stuff like that when you've just been shot with a 40 caliber gun? And how did you survive this? That, that, that was kind of an afterthought. Like, why am I still alive? But the only thing I thought at, at that moment, at those moments after was kill myself or kill him. And I thought, if I can't get away with justifiable homicide, because he wasn't attacking me at the moment. He was sitting down on the sofa. He was already done. The damage was done. I am alive. Do I have a right to, to actually pull the trigger on this mofo? And then my kids entered my thoughts and i and i had one granddaughter at that time and i thought do i really want to be sitting across from you know a glass or on camera or in a jail cell trying to explain to my children what i did when i tried to teach them their whole lives to do the right thing and the wrong thing and what the difference is and i just sat there and the blood's kind of you know coming down my neck you know over my ear I didn't even really think about that. I didn't even think about the the wound. I had no idea how, that wasn't, those were, none of those, (laughs) my hair was nowhere in any of my thoughts. I could feel the blood, but I didn't know how big the wound was. I know, you know, obviously I could smell the hair that, you know, and I had really long hair, so it was was a lot of hair that, that, you know, got shot off and burnt. I looked at the hole, I looked at the, you know, back at the cabinet. I think I went into a state of shock because I don't remember a whole, a whole bunch more after that. I do remember waking up the next morning in the spare bedroom, dried blood all over the place, dried blood on the pillow. And it was like it was a normal day, like nothing ever happened. And I went into the bathroom and I cleaned up and, you know, I tried to have that. You can't see the top of your head unless you have another mirror. And I didn't have that. So I have no idea what the top of my head looks like. And the day went on and nothing changed. Nothing. You get so numb to everything that, that had happened. And he acted like everything was normal. I got a few more of those, you know, see what you made me do kind of looks. Never uttered another word. Everything was fine. I just vegged. I just zoned out for, for, you know, a day or so. That was when I said, okay, enough is enough. I am not this person. I have taught my children to do the right thing. I have tried to do the right thing myself. I'm a good person. I help people. I volunteered for my kids at school. I, you know, PTA and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, and I was always the one that said, you know, I'll help. I would give my neighbor the, you know, the, my last cigarette. I would, you know, I would give anybody the, my shirt off my back to help somebody that needed that I thought needed it more than me. But at that point, I was like, that's enough. Enough is enough. How, how did he get this dad that he pulled a gun on me? What did I do that was so awful? How do I fix this? And that was kind of my moment where I got to fix this. I got to, how do I get out? Who do I talk to? Who do I, you know, where do I go? Do I talk to kids? And that was, that's another one of those misconceptions that women of abuse go through that we don't, we think we don't have anyone to talk to that we think we, we can't talk to any. How embarrassing is this? that, you know, our husband did this to our significant other did this to us. How can, I've always been that sassy woman. My kids will tell you that. So to go from being that sassy mom and the sassy friend and the sassy wife and, you know, all those those strong, independent qualities that I have had and have developed over the years, how did it get this bad?
0: First of all, it's hard to not want to force people to hear this story, to hear what I call like the rock bottom part of like bargaining with God. You know, this moment that I, I never, my first time ever, I was 36, like, you know, and I'd lived not a fantasy life, but I remember distinctly, like, it just, like, how could you do this to me? How could this be done to anyone? And so I, I am curious, like what the, the turn was, you know, how did that all convert out? In
1: 2016, I ended up in the hospital because I had said, you <laughs> put me in the ground, or put me in the hospital, which is why you and I are talking right now, because this is my path. This is where I need to be. You just said it. I, I feel compelled that I have got to tell my story because if I tell my story, hopefully it gives that one woman out there, one, that's all I want is one woman to say, oh my God, if she can get out of that situation and, and I can hear how how great life is for her right now, I can do this. I can do this. I, I can get out. I can make a plan. I can do this. So back to the story. So about a week before, maybe 10 days before I ended up in the hospital, we had one of those really good days. We went fishing. It was a good day. And I couldn't even tell you if we caught fish or not. Okay. We had spent several hours on the river. It was a great day. We came home. We both had been drinking, but there was no abuse whatsoever. I find myself extremely sick. Like I think it's the flu vomiting, diarrhea, chills, fever. My fever, I think spiked at like 104, 105. Okay, my kids are now going, mom, what the hell's wrong with you? I don't know. You know, it's just the flu, I'll be fine. My youngest son comes to me a few days later and I have been go almost a week, I think it was. He's like, mom, if you're not better by tomorrow night when I get off work, I'm taking you to the hospital. At that point, I was like, okay, whatever. I, I'm not getting better. Nothing's staying down. You know, it's coming out both ends. But there's nothing left anymore. The fevers, the chills, the whole night. I really thought it was the flu. I remember this is back in 2016, so we didn't have COVID. So my son comes, picks me up, takes me to the hospital. I'm wrapped in, you know, all kinds of PJs and then a robe and a blanket and everything else. And then halfway through, I'm like, you know, now I got the, the sweats, you know. So we get to the 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 hospital, and the nurse wants to take my blood pressure. She goes to my right arm, and I'm sitting down in the chair. My son, he's got this look of oh crap, you know, you know, after all the the crap that mom's been through, now this, you know. So the nurse is taking my blood pressure, and she finally, you know, let's say, you know, pumps up, comes down. I say, I know she's putting it on the other arm, and I'm like, okay, pumps it up, waits reads it comes down she said christine let's get you into a bed i'm like what is going on she said let's just get you to the bed and i said what is my blood pressure reading 70 over 50 i said so what you're saying is i shouldn't be coherent i shouldn't be conscious and i shouldn't be walking and joking about this right she said let's get you to the bed come on (laughs) right next thing i know he sends in this this guy, he's kind of dressed in no scrubs, no doctor, kind of suit, a you know, pair of jeans, uh, button-up shirt. I'm thinking, whoa, nice-looking guy, you know, really young, probably 30s. I'm in my, you know, by then I was, I like think, late 40s, early 50s, so nice-looking guy. So he's like, Christine, what's going on? I said, well, you know, so he, you know, kind of pokes around, and of course, I, you know, they draw blood and this and that and taking everything. I've got IVs in me now. Still in the emergency room, and they go out, they do a quick little consult, the two doctors come back in and they said, Christine, I'd like to do surgery on you, exploratory surgery, and see what's going on. I said, okay. And then he said, I want to put you under. I said, okay, when do we want to do this? <laughs> like now? <laughs> like we should have did this yesterday. I'm like, oh, that's serious. Uh, my, my humor just came out and I couldn't help myself. So he says, yeah, I'm going to get you prepped and we're going to get going. I'm going to do this surgery right away. Now, remember I said, you know, I had said several times to my, you know, God, angels, whatever it was that I was believing at that point, you know, put me in the ground or put me in the hospital. So, you know, I get out of the surgery, I get better. And he comes in and he's like, ah, I'm, it's not cancer. I said, all right, doc, where do we go from here? What do we do? Well, I really want to open you up. I said, what do you mean open you up, open me up? He said, well, I want to, you know, I'm going to basically go in here, which is like right between just between the the rib cage, just under the breast, go all the way down, open me up and see what what in the hell is going on on the inside. I'm like, oh, he's like, I'm gonna schedule you for first thing in the morning. So I go in for the surgery, I'm scared to death. They go in, they open me up, they basically spread my stomach apart. I had my um, appendix, gallbladder, part of my colon, part of my intestine and my, my whole left fallopian tube removed gone out I get Get out of recovery that was that was a trip Um, I'm finally back into um, ICU and kind of you know coming out and everything else and hours had passed I guess I don't I don't even remember how long like but I do remember the surgeon coming in and he came in and I looked at him you know now I got IVs all, all over the place you know both arms and he said Christine and I looked at him because I could tell he was serious. He said, if you take one more drink, you will die. And I was like, at that moment, I said to myself, that's a theory I don't want to ever test.
0: So after all these experiences that you had, how are you today when faced with the idea of death? Like, what would you tell people who are concerned about death? What is your philosophy?
1: I can't answer for anybody else, but I will tell you for myself and me personally, I'm divinely protected. So i I have no fear of death. I don't I I look forward to the day that my mission here and my purpose on earth now is fulfilled and I can go on to whatever that next phase of my life is, whether it be, you know, coming back in another form or six feet in the ground. and I don't think that's where I'm going. But that's my belief.
0: Yeah, no, that's powerful. Does that ever wane or is it just like through thick and thin, it's just now a part of you.
1: It is now just a part of me. I, I like I said, I have I have no fear of anything. I mean, like I could go stand out in the in the middle of the road, and I know I'm protected. You know, because my mission, my purpose is not fulfilled yet. Now, not that I would actually do that. I'm not saying that. You know, I'm not I'm not crazy. I don't want anybody to get any you know weird ideas. About
0: it. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't expect that. But I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I think. Uh, You know, I like to have people on from all sorts of different walks of life. So sometimes we have people who, for much, much of a lack of a better word, we call survivors, and you're obviously one of them. And I especially appreciate what you said about uh, women of abuse and not abused women, and I understand that on many deep levels. And I think it is like... Something I'm always telling friends, because I had to get out of a a bad relationship once in a a divorce is that no one's going to outright just tell you what to do. And you're not going to get a lot of support because you're trying to hide things and you're trying to keep your together. And you know, so I think what what is your like last little piece of advice for anyone who just might have like an inkling based on hearing this interview, like, Oh, wait a second, maybe I'm not in the situation I thought I was in. Do you have any advice for that? Like first thought person?
1: talk, yes, yes, talk to somebody, find somebody to talk to. If it's not me as a coach, find somebody, go in and talk to a priest, uh, you know, the police station, your, your, your school, your work, you know, somebody that you feel comfortable with, talk to somebody you, that is the biggest mistake that we make as women of abuse. We keep it inside. We don't talk about it. We don't bring it to light. We don't, we don't say, Hey, this is happening and I need help. Those, those three words are the hardest words in the English language to say when put together. I need help, but they make you the strongest person in the world when you can say that.
0: Wow, that is such a great way to send us off. I completely agree. Uh, I still think they're the three hardest words I've ever had to say and will ever say. And uh, Christine Malik, you're incredible person, you're an incredible human, you're an incredible role model, uh, you are incredible. To everyone listening at home, obviously of most concern to all of us is uh, please love yourself and make sure that you're in a safe place, and if you're not find someone and say you need help um and thank you again christine this has been another episode of coffin talk my name is mike oppenheim the best way to support the show is just to head over to mikeyop.com and sign up for free to the once a week newsletter that comes with the podcast we love you all and we will see you soon